Well, good morning, Oak Ridge. It's good to be with you, and I especially appreciate being able to say thank you right now for the participation that we receive in your missions offering as your local association, and I, my, my role as your area missionary, just want you to know how much I appreciate this church. Uh, over the last 60 days, more than $10,000 has gone out from our association because of offerings like this offering that has allowed us to directly help uh, more than 10 churches with disaster relief. All told, since the, the uh, hurricane, more than $70,000 has flowed through this association to assist churches that were hurt, as well as to help families that needed to be uh, responded to. And you're part of that, and we're very grateful for that. And as your associational missionary, I will tell you that I'd like to say thank you right now on behalf of the 90 people that will move into this association today and the 90 that will move in tomorrow and the 90 that will move in after that. Because in general, we can say more than 30,000 people a year move into this association. And we can plant a megachurch every single month and not keep up with lostness. So the only way that we're going to be able to respond to the need and the pressing needs of people spiritually is going to be because churches like your church have made a commitment to local missions. And we're grateful for that. I'm grateful for a number of things on this church. I'm grateful for the commitment this church has to God's Word. You've been going through a uh, study called Unashamed. Unashamed of who you are in Jesus Christ. Being ready to give an answer for your faith. It's based out of 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm just going to read a portion of that where it says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And the expectation of the writer is, is that we're going to live in such a way that people see a hope within us that gives them a cause to ask us about it. And this church has made a clear decision that as a church family that you're going to be faithful to stay true to the doctrines of the faith. That's one of the things I've appreciated about this church. I especially have uh, appreciated about your pastor is that he has a clear understanding of how important it is for you to know what you believe and why. And when you started this series in January, the two objectives that he shared with you was that this was to help us guard against error and for us to understand the doctrine that we hold on to. And this is critical. And I enjoyed getting to go back and I listened to about five or six of those messages. And if you missed any of those, I want to encourage you to do so because it's, it's a very solid series that will help you get clear about what we believe the Bible has to say to us. Now this morning, pastor has asked that I talk with you in particular about two areas, humankind and salvation. And I want to talk to you about that. And when I think about humankind and salvation, I am reminded of playgrounds, especially playgrounds of the past. Now I'm not talking about the kind of playgrounds that people have today. I'm talking about when playgrounds were playgrounds when playgrounds carried a level of risk. We did not have soft things to fall on. We did not have someone say, unless you're this high, you can't go on that slide. What we had 
were places where you had the potential of never going home. We had monkey bars, and the way a child would decide if a monkey bar was any fun is if it was so tall that when you fell, you might get to see your brief life on the way down. And if you were in the very center of it and you fell, it worked out okay because you would sort of go down, hitting both sides on your way down. But besides the monkey bars, I thought of slides. You remember slides when slides were slides? I'm not talking about safe slides where there's this cone around you making sure that you stay on it. I'm talking about the kind of slide that as you got up it, you wondered whether or not your mother loved you. I mean, it would be high enough. And used to slides did not have that little S curve. You know that that was introduced as a precaution. It was a safety precaution. Because what they found out was when they put a 16-foot slide that you could gather enough speed that you really could fly at the end. So they put the S in it as a way of slowing you down a little bit. But as children, you learned if you hit it just right, you could get air. And they also, you can see that little girl, they put a bar across the top so that people wouldn't run straight down the slide but had to sit down first. And so what do children do? What they always do. They invented something so you would get up there, grab the bar, do a flip, and then go down the slide. And usually... If you put those monkey bars and that slide together, you ended up with something you didn't expect, which was the emergency room. I'm just curious, how many of you ever ended up in an emergency room because of a playground? I did. I took this, this leap off the monkey bars, trying to grab hold of this bar that was about six feet away. And I learned about a law called gravity. And as I fell that eight feet, I had plenty of time to think about my error of my ways. And as my bottom teeth went through the bottom of my lip, at that point I quit thinking and just started hurting. But six stitches later, in about a day, I was back on those monkey bars. But wouldn't you say that if you were going to take a leap that could hurt you, you might do well to make sure that what you're leaping for is there to get you. And when I think about humankind, when I think about what God has to say to us about mankind and about salvation, I'm mindful of this. All of us know that one day this world ends. We stop existing on this world. Wouldn't it be good to know with certainty what happens next? So that we're not just leaping, but we look carefully at what's in front of us. There's a word that I want you to think about as we go into this identity crisis, looking before you leap. And the word is the word that is found in Genesis chapter 1. As we think about humankind, we're going to look in particular at Genesis chapter 3. But there's a word found in Genesis 1 that I want you to think about. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light. And what did he say? It was good. And then later in Genesis 1, verse 28 says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And that word there is a plurative. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock 
and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Now the word good is important because it's used seven times in talking about creation. It is used 14 times in the first three chapters of Genesis. And I thought about why good and not the word excellent? Why not use a superlative? You know, if you know about grammar, you know that a superlative is expressing the highest or the very high degree of quality. And so we have an adjective and a comparative and a superlative. And I can't tell you how impressed my 12th grade English teacher would be that I know this. Because I have no proof if you looked at my grades. But the reality is, is that we have an adjective that'd be good, comparative, better, superlative, best. We have it for other words like long, longer, longest. You can apply that to a sermon. How long? It was longer. No, it was the longest I've ever heard. But the reality is, is that if I were writing the Bible when it came to creation, I think I would say, that's the best. Why wouldn't God say when he created humankind, that's the best. When he created the creeping things upon the earth and the fish in the sea. Why did he say that's the best? Why did he choose purposely the word good? It's because his intention was not just to give you an adjective. But because when God uses the word good, it is an expression of his character in creation. Let me share with you a couple of scripture passages that demonstrate that. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses is talking to the Lord and interceding on behalf of the people. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do for you, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, Please show me your glory. So what's Moses asking for? God, I want to see your glory. Look at what God said. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, said the Lord. You see, when God reveals his glory, he's revealing his goodness. And when we peer upon God, and the Bible says no man can look at God and live, what, when God talks about glory, he's not talking about I'm the all-powerful one or I'm the all-knowing one. He is saying my glory is shown clearly in my goodness. And it is pure. And it's complete. And it is holy. So when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, good teacher, the response of Jesus was very simple. He says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. So when we talk about the word good in creation, we are talking about a manifest reflection of God's person in what creation is. And that the goodness of God is demonstrated in every step and phase of creation. And creation is reflection of his nature. So when I take a hard look at mankind, at humankind, when I'm taking that look, what I need to know is that the purpose is for God to reveal himself in creation. 
that God's intention is that there would be clarity about the reflection of his goodness in our life. And that his intention within creation, this kind of getting to me, one more slide please, that his intention within that is that he wanted them to be able to express and understand who he is. Guys, I'm a little bit lost. I'm gonna see if I can come in agreement with the slide. Okay. I'm going with what we got. Here's what I want you to understand. When it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called the man and said, Where are you? Why? Because sin had entered into the world. Because in creation, God's intention was that there be no sin. That God's intention was that we were to be a manifest reflection of who he is. That God's intention is that he would provide for every need that we had and every need was there. There was no hunting around and hoping for food. It was present. There was not any thorn or thistle. There was not anything that would keep you from experiencing the fullness of the earth. The intention of the creation was for it to reflect God's glory and for us as created beings to glorify in Him. But within that, there had to be the opportunity for choice, for a decision to be able to be made. Because here's what you need to know. When you're created in the image of God, it can't be just, I'm created in the image of God and I don't have choice. Choice is part of God's image. Free will is part of God's image. And I must live in choice. So when Adam and Eve were walking through the garden and they were participating with God in what he was doing, without the ability of choice, there is no such thing as the reflective glory of God. Choice had to be there. You see, it, it's just like little children when you're playing with them. And one of the first games that almost every child seems to learn is how to grab a block and drop a block and let you pick it up. And after a while, they figure out, okay, I can move this huge human around by doing this. And after a while, what do you do? You get rid of the blocks. But some of us would prefer if God had just not provided choice. Oh, wouldn't it be so much better if there was no choice? Or that God somehow covered every choice I make that's, that's poor. That he, he walked around with a holy uh, heavenly wastebasket. So every time I drop something, he'd catch it. And he'd recover it. And he would take care of it instead of there being any responsibility upon my part. What I have to know is if I'm really going to know him, I must choose to know him. And without choice, there is no true reflection of his glory. But when sin came into the world, we didn't just experience sin. We experienced the compromise of God's intention in our life. We experienced goodness being compromised. So when I think about sin and condemnation, I'm reminded of a study that was done in 2016 by Lifeway about sin. And they asked this question, what do you think? They've surveyed over 3,000 people across socioeconomic lines different education ability, different ethnicities, and asked America, what do you think about sin and condemnation within a 2% era? 
One of the questions, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 65% of the people that you would talk to would say, oh yeah, I believe that. God would be fair to show his wrath against sin. 57% of the people said, oh, I, I believe that. What's interesting is even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. 74% said no way. Surely not. And it reminds me of the way that we look at sin. Because when we look at sin, what we want to think of is that there's this dichotomy between big sin and small sin. And if it was up to us, we would probably grade sin on the bell curve. You remember being graded on the bell curve in school? So what we want to do is we want to distinguish between small sin, and it's this percentage, or big sin, and it's that percentage, and that there's all this other sin that's kind of in the middle. Because we don't want to think that it's possible that a small sin could somehow cause me to not experience heaven. But here's, here's the way we're wired. We are wired in such a way that we want to push what is small ever bigger, don't we? Have you noticed that? We want the consequence of the impact of our sin to get smaller, but the margin of what's considered small sin to be bigger, and what's a big sin gets smaller. That's the way we're wired. And it kind of reminds me that as long as, as I'm better than you, I'll be okay. It, it's kind of like what uh, James Butcher said about the guy, two guys running from a bear. I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. So think about what it would be like if this is the way it really is. That if God said, now here's what's going to happen. We're going to grade you on the bell curve. And as long as your sins don't hit a certain point, you get heaven. But anything beyond that point, you're going to hell. Now, does that sound like something that would give you security? I mean, well, all of a sudden, I just want to hang around a bunch of people worse than me. So that God can somehow look at me and go, well, you know, compared to your friends, you're pretty good. But that's the way a lot of people think. They think, well, you know, I do the best I can do. And compared to a lot of people I know, I mean, I'm not that bad. What if God graded on the curve? The thing is, he doesn't. And if I believed that, I would have no assurance. So what about the afterlife? What do people think about the afterlife? Heaven is a place where all people will ultimately be reunited with loved ones. 60% said no doubt. 40% said there's no question that hell is an eternal place of judgment where God sends all people who do not personally trust in Jesus Christ. Now that's a random survey of 3,000 people. They weren't all Christians. This is just America. But look at that last one. By the good deeds I do, I partly contribute to earning my place in heaven. If I just do good deeds, that'll help me get a place in heaven. Which begs this question, if, if I believe that good deeds help me have a place in heaven, then do bad deeds help me have a place in hell? If I can do something good to get to heaven, can I do something bad to send me to hell? And it reminds me of a conversation I read between a boy and his tiger talking about Christmas presents. You may know this guy. His name is Calvin. Calvin says, I'm getting nervous about Christmas. Hobbes says, you're worried you haven't been good? 
To which Calvin responded, you know, that's just the question. It's all relative. What's Santa's definition? How good do you have to be to qualify as good? I haven't killed anybody. That's good, right? I haven't committed any felonies. I didn't start any wars. Wouldn't you say that's pretty good? Wouldn't you say I should get lots of presents? To which Hobbes says, maybe good is more than the absence of bad. To which Calvin says, see, that's what worries me. You see, sometimes our definition of good is really about the absence of bad. What you need to hear is the consequence of sin is not just sin separates me from God or that sin minimizes my opportunity to be able to experience the things of God. Is that sin has crippled me from being able to experience and know the goodness of God or His goodness reflecting in me. And I can do all I can to be as good as I can, to do as well as I can, to work as hard as I can, to be as perfect as I can. And even if I could somehow achieve sinless perfection from this day forward, I still don't have the restoration of God's goodness in my life. Now let me ask you, do we have anybody here that thinks you can make it through the week without somehow committing what the Bible calls sin? We know we can't. How do I recover the goodness of God in my life? How do I recover that which He intended from creation? How do I recover what He has called to give to me? It's a leap of faith. And if you're going to take a leap, be sure about where you're jumping. If I think it's my efforts, then there's always somebody whose efforts are greater. But what does God say about our works? In Isaiah 64, 6, he says it like this, but we are all as unclean things and all our righteousness are as filthy rags. The reality is that God says that when it comes to our goodness, when we try to do it on our own flesh and our own way, we are like a child that's been given a crayon and asked, Draw a perfect circle. I mean, how hard could that be? But the reality is, none of us in a freehand ability have the ability to draw that perfect circle. So what is God's answer? What is God's answer to the recovery of goodness? To the conquering of sin? His name is Jesus. In Romans chapter 3, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. It's a, a literal leap of faith. Because what Romans tells us is, is that, that we stood at this precipice brink and that we were separated from God. And that we did not have hope outside of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that we needed a righteousness that we don't have. 
How do I get righteousness or right standing before God on my own? Well, can I just work for it? Can I just try harder? Well, the Bible says that when I do that, that my righteousness is like filthy rags. Because God's not comparing me to you. And God's not comparing you to me or to each other. Or to even the meanest person you know or the nicest person you know. He compares us to himself. To his goodness. To his perfection. And if I have to attain that on my own, I don't have hope. And that's exactly where the Bible says you and I were. We were without hope. Trying to figure out how God, how can this be worked out? And the Bible says very clearly the way it was worked out was by Jesus. It says there is now a righteousness of God that's been manifested apart from the law. Jesus Christ is the righteous one. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, walked this earth in sinless perfection. But he didn't just walk with sinless perfection. He embodied and held completely the full goodness of God. The Bible says that he hid from us his full glory. You know why? We couldn't have stood it. It says that he emptied himself, being found in the form of a servant, that he was willing to minimize the glory so he could give to us the choice for salvation. And the righteous one, the Bible says, didn't just walk a perfect life or a good life, that the righteous one walked and then yielded himself to be the sacrifice for your life and for mine. He became our Redeemer. He's the one that stood up and said, their goodness is not sufficient, but my goodness is. And the Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for you and for me. And on the cross, he died. The death I deserve was buried, and three days later, the grave could not hold his glory. And he rose. It is stunning to think that the God who spoke the world into existence, who said, let us make man and woman in our image, is the God who said, I will become flesh and walk among them, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only Son of God. He redeemed us. So when my goodness was not sufficient, when my best efforts could not possibly save me, the Bible says that Jesus stood in the gap. He took it. He became the propitiation for me. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, and seven, that you and I were bought with a price. 
And this word propitiation, when it says that he became the propitiation for us, the word literally means that he became the blood covering of the mercy seat. He became the mercy seat for us because in the sacrificial system, long before this, for generation after generation, decade and decade, and for hundreds and hundreds of years, what would have to happen is once a year the high priest would take the the blood of the sacrifice and would take it into that, that temple and it would be brought before God as a demonstration of the people's sorrow and repentance for their sin and then the blood would be poured upon the mercy seat and on the different instruments within the, uh, the, the temple as a way of saying to God, we're sorry and we know we don't deserve grace but we ask you for grace. And in Romans 3 it tells us that every time that was done, that as God looked at it, he didn't just look at the event that was happening. That in the Old Testament, he looked at what was going to happen there in that moment in that temple. And he looked forward to the day of the cross. And he said, I will accept this because of what's coming. Because this is a symbol of the substance that's going to come. And one day when my son gives his life, it pours himself out for you. I will accept your offerings, not because they're of blood and not because they're of bulls or calves, but because they represent my blessed, precious son. He became our covering. It says in Hebrews 9, but when Christ appeared as a high priest to do good things that have come, then through the greater, more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. So what happened in the past was, was done as a sign of what would take place one day upon the cross. And now for you and for me, when we receive Christ as our Savior, and as we walk, God looks at our request for forgiveness, and he looks back to that cross and says, it's not because at this moment Christ has died for you, it's because he did die. His blood speaks to the past, and it speaks to the future. It covers eternity. So when we sing, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, it's because I can't be good enough. I can't do enough. To get what Jesus bought for me. That's what he did for you and me. This world is groaning, according to Romans 8, and travailing, waiting for the day when the new earth and the new heaven will come. It is waiting for the day when what was right that was marred could be recovered. And God is waiting for the day. For those who don't know him yet, to call upon the name of Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven or on earth by which you can be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. But here's what you have to know. You have to know that when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, when you trust in Him, when you take that leap for eternity and you grab hold of Him and He takes you, that you are being held by Him and not by your efforts.
We need to remember that we aren't just saved from the consequence of sin. We aren't just saved from hell. We're not just saved from separation from God. We're not just saved from the results of the fall. We are saved to a life that we are called now to demonstrate, to emulate, to allow the glory of God to work through us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's why it says in God's word, I've been crucified, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And God has called you and I to live in this world, being saved and knowing him and secure in our relationship with him, not only to be saved, But now, through sanctification, to allow Him to live through us so that we might be His ambassadors. As Paul says, as if by through us He makes His appeal. And that's the reason why we we gather together in fellowship. And that's the reason why we support what God does in His church. And that's the reason why it's important that I grow. It's not so that, listen, listen, this isn't about just gaining information. This isn't about so that you can do well on the Bible drill. This is about a transformation of your life so that the goodness of God has freedom to pour through you so that this world can see the examples of what it really means to know Jesus. You were saved from so much. You've been saved too so much more. So I ask you, where will you leap be today? Who are you leaping to? You see, Jesus, Jesus stands and waits, wants us, to be in this relationship with him. In Romans 6.23 it says very simply. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God. Is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's just that simple. You see there will be payment. There, there's not a question about. Will payday someday come. As Billy Sunday liked to say. The reality is that for each one of us, as we walk this world, we will come to the place where we will have to be able to say. I said yes or I said no to Jesus. I thought about that this, this week because over the last 30 days, two of the most influential people in this world, in our century, have died. I thought about Stephen Hawking and his passing, that amazingly brilliant physicist. I thought about a book I'd read that he had written called A Brief History of Time. And I was amazed as I read that book that as I went through the logical progression that he gave about what he believed and why he believed it, I realized he came up to this fence point, if you will, where he could have fallen on one side and said, I believe there is God and I believe there is a Savior. And that explains things. Or I could fall on this side and say, we just don't know enough yet, but one day we will and we don't need God. And even he acknowledged the own uh, discrepancies between his understanding of love and family and relationship and the understanding of the person of who God is. And I thought about and I prayed in my heart, oh God, that somewhere between the moment of his, before his last breath and his first moment in eternity, that he reached out to you and said, Jesus, I believe. 
Because if he didn't, it doesn't matter how brilliant he was, doesn't matter how good he wanted to be, his eternity will be without God. And then I thought about Billy Graham. And I thought about someone who lived in a very humble circumstance who also went through a crisis of faith. Who also came to the place where he was asking this question. Can I believe the Bible? Can I believe what it really says? Who after agony of prayer came to his own conclusion and said, God, I've just decided I'm going to trust what you have to say. I'm going to believe what it says. I'm going to stand on what it says. I'm trusting in you. I thought, oh, Father, what a difference in homecoming between two men. And what a difference in homecoming it will be for us between those who say, I don't need God. I don't need Jesus. I'll just be good enough. And those who say, my righteousness is just filthy rags. I needed a Savior. And Jesus Jesus paid it all. Will you bow your heads with me? As your heads are bowed, I ask you very simply, have you embraced and trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you honestly come before the Lord and said, Lord, here I am. I just, I'm sorry I'm sorry for the sin that separates me from you. I'm sorry for the disappointment that I have caused. I'm sorry that even when I tried my best, it's still not perfect. Lord, I need you. I need you to come into my heart. I need you to come and forgive my sin. I need your blood to cleanse me. I need your life within me. Oh, Jesus, I surrender all I am to you. I trust that you are the Savior of the world, the only Son of God. I yield myself completely to you. If you've never asked Jesus in your heart, if you've never embraced Him as Lord and Savior, then today you can say yes. But let me just speak for a moment to those of you that have said yes to Jesus. But it's been more about fire insurance than it's been about life direction. It's time to take that next step. It's time to fully yield to God. It's, fine. it's time to say, Lord, I know you're a Savior. I need to live for you as my Lord. I need every breath I take. I need every thought I have. I need all of my life to give you glory. And I ask you, God, to forgive me for when I pulled away and said no. Oh God, forgive my sin, forgive fallow ground that I have walked on, that I have made tough and hard. And I ask that you would break it up, that your Holy Spirit would speak within my heart and that I would be cleansed of willful sin and respond to you. Lord God, here I am. 
I don't know where you are today, but I know where Jesus is. He's ready to catch you. So if you've never said yes to Christ, I would welcome talking to you. There are others in this church. You can see them. They have a little badge that says, can I help? Or there's deacons, there's, there's staff that would visit with you. But there's no reason to walk out of here today not knowing Jesus is your Savior. Or perhaps you just need to be able to take opportunity at this altar to be able to hold on to the Lord and to cry out to Him. Or perhaps you just need to go to someone in this, this service and say, I need you to pray for me right now. But whatever God has spoken to your heart, you say yes as we stand now, as we sing, as we embrace and reach out to the only one who will never drop us. We yield ourselves to you. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.